Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Hey, Erickson Covenant Church family. Uh, my name is Shannon Johnson Friesen, and I am so glad to be with you again today. I preached last week for you as well. For those of you just meeting me for the first time, I am the pastor and church planter of Stonehouse Covenant Church in Steinbeck, Manitoba, right in the middle of Canada. Uh, Stonehouse will be three years old in September, and, um, and I'll have been a pastor for the same amount of time. Uh, my family uh, is, I, is consists of my husband and my three kids and my two dogs, and I like to run, and I like to bike, and I like to sit around the table with family and friends um, and chat and just be together with others. Um, it has been a privilege to revisit this sermon that I preached um, a couple of months ago for Stonehouse. It, this text gave gifts to me um, and is one of those um, texts and sermons that will just stick with me, I think, probably for the rest of my life in some ways. Uh, it was sort of a game changer, and I'm grateful to share it with you. Um, same as last week, uh, this is Hagar part two, and, um, and man, these two texts are, are really astounding. Um, so... Let's get to it, Uh, but before that, let's pray together. God of grace, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Lord, I pray that you will um, honor our attentiveness and our bringing our hearts to you, that you would teach us, that you would shape us through this text Uh, through these words that you have spoken through the writers. Um, God, I pray that you will be honored and glorified uh, by by how we receive it and then what we do with it from here on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read John Boyne's The Boy in the Striped Pajamas for the first time a few months ago leading up to this sermon, although it's not the reason that I read the book. My daughter handed it to me, and um, it's a really important book, so uh, I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't. It's a self-proclaimed fable representing and confronting the systemic evil of the Holocaust. The story is told from the perspective of a nine-year-old German boy named Bruno, whose father becomes the commandant of Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp in Poland, where more than a million Jews lost their lives. Bruno and his family relocate from Berlin for his father's new job and arrive at a standalone house in what seems to be the middle of nowhere, just outside the gates of Auschwitz. Bruno has no idea what's happening on the other side of the fence. He just sees people at a distance and observes that they all dress the same. 
They are there for months and Bruno is lonely and he begins exploring, sometimes in the trees and sometimes by the fence. And one day, as he walks the fence line, he meets a boy who lives on the other side. Shimuel, it turns out, shares the same birthday as Bruno. They are exactly the same age. The boys meet up and chat through the fence for near, every day for nearly a year and they become best friends. Neither of them really understands the reason for the fence between them. Neither of them comprehends the injustice. Bruno has no concept of Shimuel's life as a Jew and a prisoner. He assumes their lives are very much the same. Completely unaware of his privilege, he observes that Shimuel is hungry, but he doesn't wonder why. He even envies Shimuel's belonging in a community. One day, Shimuel reports that his father has gone missing, and the boys decide that Bruno will crawl under the fence to help Shimuel find him. Shimuel brings Bruno a matching pair of striped pajamas, and they walk into the camp together only to get swept into a group of prisoners being corralled and marched into a gas chamber. The story ends with the boys holding hands and the doors being shut. It is a small and tragic glimpse of the evil that arises out of racial prejudice, power, and assumed privilege. It confronts the fence. The word injustice feels too small to describe what took place in Auschwitz and the other concentration camps in World War II. How do you put into words an evil that justifies the abuse and extermination of other humans, including innocent children? You can't. We observe through this lived history and other lived histories of slavery and colonialism that fear leads to discrimination and discrimination leads to the grasping of power and the grasping of power leads to the subjugation, exploitation and abuse of fellow humans. To view one's life as more valuable than another's, to pursue one's own gain at the cost of another's life or well-being is perhaps the greatest evil that exists on the planet. Genesis reveals it as the first sin outside the garden when Cain took his brother's life, and it's been something that has defined us ever since. Last week, we began the story of Hagar, looking particularly at the way Genesis affirms that God is for all humans, that God sees and knows and cares for and reveals himself to those on the outside of the Abrahamic covenant as well as those on the inside. God makes room at the table. Hagar's story in Genesis 16 reveals that God is relational, and not only that, that God is personal. It reveals that he affirms those who seek to free themselves and others from oppressive power structures, that he values every human, and that he operates outside the bounds of social constructs and assumptions, and that he is beyond the confines of this particular nation's story while at the same time revealing himself through it. Seeing these things in this story jars us awake. It resonates deeply for many of us because like this, this is what we want the scriptures to teach. This is who we want God to be. 
and it beckons us to keep reading, and so we will. Today, we will look at the second part of Hagar's story in Genesis 21, and again, we will see flagrant discrimination and injustice by the humans and the radical inclusivity and grace of God. Just as God had promised Abraham, Sarah becomes pregnant in her old age and she gives birth to a son whom they name Isaac. Genesis tells us that this son will, uh, this is the son God will establish his everlasting covenant with, the one through whom Abraham will become the father of a multitude of nations that will bless all the nations on the earth. Remember, the main aim of Genesis is to preserve this story. The story of Yahweh's choice of and covenant with Abraham and his offspring, particularly through Isaac and Jacob. It reveals that Yahweh promised land and offspring to Abraham and that he keeps his promise. This is what Genesis is doing. But like I said last week, Genesis is doing other things too. In a parallel story, Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian slave woman, has also given Abraham a son. The fact that we're given the story of her encounter with God in the wilderness, that Abraham named his son, the name God revealed to Hagar, that the well was named the well of the living one who sees me as a memorial of her encounter with God means that she also was given a voice among the people of Israel. Genesis honors the fact that Ishmael too is a fulfillment of God's promise. Ishmael will become the father of a great nation, just like Abraham. Twelve princes will come from Ishmael, just as twelve sons will be born to Jacob. Ishmael is Abraham's son. He's within the covenant even. He's circumcised along with his father and all the males in his father's household. And Ishmael is a free man, like Abraham, not a slave. So Sarah gives birth to Isaac, and when he is eight days old, he too is circumcised, as God commanded Abraham. And the child grew, the text says, and then he was weaned. And he was probably between the ages of three and five. So like, imagine the cutest, funniest stage that little kids go through. I mean, seriously, five-year-olds, three-year-olds, they're some of my favorite people in the world. I have a niece who is three and... I I can't get enough of her. So Um, Abraham throws this huge party on the day that Isaac was weaned. And this was like sort of a child's first rite of passage. So now Isaac would kind of transfer to being Abraham's shadow. He's been with his mother the whole time and now he is, or a nurse or something. And then now he will be Abraham's shadow. So I'm going to start reading our story. Um, It starts in Genesis 21, and I'm going to start in verse 9, if you'd like to follow along with me. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very evil to Abraham, on account of his son. Right away with this language, Sarah is disputing Ishmael's status as Abraham's son. She's emphasizing Hagar's status as a slave and her own maternal privilege, vehemently reinforcing a social boundary, claiming her right to live on this side of the fence, while Hagar must be forced to the other side. 
It's interesting to note that when she had given Hagar to Abraham years before this, it was to produce a son for her, to carry on her line. You wonder if she had somehow lost some power and status when Hagar had returned from that well. From what we see, especially in the promises of God to Hagar, Ishmael remained Hagar's son. And now that Sarah had her own son, Ishmael and Hagar became a threat. The firstborn son received the greatest blessing and inheritance in ancient Near Eastern cultures. Ishmael would not get in the way of Isaac's inheritance. Sarah would make sure of it. So she told Abraham to cast them out. And as we read, the thing was very evil in Abraham's eyes on account of his son Ishmael. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Abraham didn't want to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. It was an act of obedience that he did it this time. God actually told him to do it. And it didn't make sense. How would they survive? Bread and a skin of water does not seem like much. And you kind of question it unless you kind of take it to the other end of the, of the question and you say, well, you wonder if maybe it was all that he could give them because anything else that they ate in those days would spoil. Um, we're told in an earlier story that Abraham provides food for some travelers um, and he gives them curds, milk, and meat. So all of those things would spoil, whereas bread and water obviously wouldn't. We also don't know how big the skin of water was or how much bread he gave them, but honestly, How much water can one person carry in a skin on their back? This whole situation um, that God seems to be backing, again, appears so unjust, similar to God telling Hagar to return to her abusive mistress in Genesis 16. And again, it makes us uncomfortable, and it begs us to keep reading. It is God's promise that founds Abraham's obedience. I will make a nation of the slave woman's son, he says. So Abraham believes God and he sends them away. Now, if you're reading this story chronologically, Ishmael would have been around 16 or 17 years old when they went back to the wilderness the second time. So like practically a man, um, the way the Hebrew narrative works means that we can't always assume that the stories are chronological. So we have to kind of hold this loosely. Uh, The way that the story is told makes it seem like Ishmael is much younger than 16 or 17. Um, it's not so concerned with like the historical, um, logical details. I think what it's doing, it it means that we have to pay attention, not to the timeline, whether the timeline makes sense, but to what the story is revealing. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's move on to verse 15 here. When the water in the skin was gone, Hagar put the child under one of the bushes 
And then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about a distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Get up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. God heard the voice of God hears, Ishmael. The image of a destitute pregnant Hagar comes rushing back in this moment. The promises that God had made for her that day echo, I will multiply your offspring into a multitude that cannot be counted. You shall have a son and he shall be free. You are the God who sees me. I have seen the one who sees me is Hagar's response in Genesis 16. Just as he'd listened to Hagar's affliction when she'd fled from Sarah into the wilderness, so he now hears her son. Their cry for justice, for deliverance, reaches God's ears. Fear not, Hagar. Lift up your son and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God intervenes. The text says he opens Hagar's eyes and she sees the source of their deliverance. It's another well. And she went and she fills the skin with water and she gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up, we read. He lived in the wilderness. He made a home in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Friends, Hagar and Ishmael not only survive, they are free. She is free. God has kept his promises and he has given her a gift. Again, in this second part of Hagar's story, we see a grace arising out of what is truly unjust. Their forced departure into the wilderness left them in a precarious situation without enough food and water to survive yet. It's in the wilderness that God provides for their survival and their freedom. Hagar is no longer a slave. Like the nation of Israel after her, Hagar is liberated from slavery by the way of the wilderness. It's the place where she gains agency and means. That she takes a wife for Ishmael from Egypt means she also gains some kinds of power. She herself takes on the role of a patriarch. That's what this takes a wife for Ishmael means. So what is Genesis showing us? Hagar's story is set right next to Abraham's. Both are met. Both are spoken to by God. Both are promised offspring beyond number. Both are promised a son, and that son is named by God. Both sons are promised great futures. Both sons become beloved sons of Abraham. And God intervenes to save both sons from imminent death. 
In Genesis 21, as we've read, Ishmael is dying under the bush and God calls to Hagar from heaven and he opens Hagar's eyes and shows her a well. God provides the water that would become her son's salvation. In the very next chapter, we have the story of the testing of Abraham, where God tells him to take Isaac to a mountain and offer him there as a burnt offering, and Abraham obeys God. He goes up to the mountain and builds an altar and lays Isaac on it. And just as he is about to slaughter his son, God calls to him from heaven and tells him not to lay a hand on the boy, acknowledging his trust and humility before God. And then the text says Abraham lifts his eyes and sees a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. God provides the lamb that would become the burnt offering in the place of Isaac. God provides the lamb that would become his son's salvation. God is for both sons. God is with both sons. We are told God is, was with Ishmael as he grew up in the wilderness. This means God acted on his behalf. Later, we're told God was with Isaac, and then that God was with Jacob, and then that God was with Joseph in Egypt. God is for both sons. In these parallels, we see clearly that Hagar is honored alongside Abraham. Her son is not the son of the particular covenant, but he is no less valuable. He's part of a different story that God is writing. His is a separate flourishing. What's interesting is that in chapter 25, we read that Abraham died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and that he was gathered to his people, sort of like there's life beyond this life. (laughs) And we're told that his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, bury him. And we're told that Isaac settles at Bir Lachai Royi, the spring on the way to Shur, the same place Hagar was met by God when Ishmael was still in her womb. And we're told that Ishmael's descendants settle between Shur and Havilah. Ishmael didn't go too far. And then we're given Ishmael's genealogy, a list of his male descendants. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to Abraham. And then the 12 sons are listed, 12 princes according to their tribes. And then we're told that Ishmael too breathed his last at a good old age and that he too was gathered to his people. And the last thing we're told is that he, the nation of Ishmael, settled over against all his kinsmen. And these words describe a free people, not slaves. These stories are not erecting a fence. They're setting a table. They reveal that God has not exclusively committed himself to this one elect line of Abraham and Isaac, that his concern and actions are also for those outside that line. That's part of a a commentator's um, quote that that I used last week. They also reveal that God keeps his promises, that God hears us, all of us, every human, 
that God sees us and that God's table is long and that it's a table of radical grace. We see in these stories that God desires and pursues justice on behalf of the oppressed, that he sees the evil that pervades our world, evil that arises out of fear and discrimination, and that he works with us to deliver those who suffer because of it. We see that he honors humility and righteous acts, and that he provides, that he is for the flourishing of all people. Again, we see that God is not confined to this particular nation's story and is at the same time choosing to reveal himself through it. I listened to a podcast a couple weeks ago before I wrote this sermon, um, or a couple weeks before I wrote this sermon, where an Australian Aboriginal Christian leader was being interviewed on how to read the Bible through Aboriginal eyes. Uh, If you're familiar with the Bible for Normal People, um, it was on there, and I can't remember which number it was. Um, Anyway, she talked about the colonization that took place and the resulting genocide of the people native to Australia, so the Aboriginal people in Australia. And then she goes on to name a grace that arose out of the injustice. The Aboriginal people met Jesus in the scriptures. So their whole history which is so deeply rooted with stories passed down from generation to generation. Um, For their whole history, they've been acknowledging the creator. And then it was actually through the colonizers, through the injustice um, that has been done to them, that is still really pervasive in Australia, Um, through the colonizers coming, the scriptures were given to them and... Um, the scriptures actually aligned with their experience and their knowledge of the creator. And then it introduced them to Jesus. This is just one other um, small example, uh, which kind of feeds into this story as this other um, kind of illustration did. The week that I was writing this sermon, I had a conversation with my seven-year-old neighbor boy, who is Punjabi. And I am trying to like vaguely, rem- like I'm vaguely remembering it, but, but it kind of was, went something like this. He's like, you go to church. And I said, yes, so do you, right? You go to a temple in Winnipeg. And yeah, we talked a little bit about that. And, um, and then he kind of like went a little bit farther and, and he was like, you think there is only one God. As if there had been some conversation around their table. Or, um, they know that I'm a pastor and that we go to church. Um, so it's sort of like they had been um, in conversation about maybe our different faiths or something like that. Um, and, and by his like um, sort of, you believe there is one God, it was sort of like he was assuming our exclusivity. And... Like, I can just put myself in that moment and I'm remembering that I just, somehow the spirit was in that moment and, and it was like a split second, but my reply, um, coming out of studying these texts was God has many names and he pointed at me and he was like, yes. 
And it was like we had this shared um, moment with the spirit somehow. Uh, as, as I was able to kind of come alongside and, and proclaim a truth. And, um, and I don't know where to put that other than to say that this, this is true. And, and, and God is revealing himself in the world. And, and he does um, reveal himself beyond somehow this particular story. God is not confined to a particular story and is at the same time revealing himself through this particular story. I'll ask us the same question I asked last week. Where does this leave us as the church? I think it begs us to listen, to be humble, to not assume an exclusivity in our chosenness, in our right to belong, It challenges us to examine our assumptions, especially those that lead us to make decisions about who's in and who's out, and that lead to some being at the top and others being at the bottom. It calls us to repent and to start taking down fences. It invites us to read scripture looking for those on the margins and to see and testify to God's radical grace and inclusion inclusivity found within its pages. Let's pray together and then, um, and then we will say goodbye. God, may these words that you have um, given to us uh, make their way deep inside of us and do their work within us. Move us into places of grace and generosity for one another and for our neighbors. May we see your heart, God. May we see your grace. And may those things define um, how we work and act in the world, how we respond. Glory be to you, God, um, both now and forever. Amen. Friends, it's been a privilege to share with you this morning, um, and I am grateful for this time that we've had together. Uh, Go with God. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.